0: Amen. And I am excited. So, you probably noticed by the sheer amount of elephants in the room. uh, I was worshiping and I looked up here. I was like, what is I was like, that is an elephant. Uh, That we are starting a new sermon series today uh, called Elephant in the Room. Um, it's a series in which we're, we're, we're seeking to aim or figure out what God has to say about our financial resources. Um, and my hope is that you will assess uh, your resources and assess the money that God has given you and, and, and view it from a biblical perspective. So I am going to read our passage today. It's in the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Uh, it's probably one of the most butchered passages in all of the Bible, uh, but I think uh, that it is important for us to dive into today, this today. Uh, Malachi. 3 verse 7 and 8 I'm going to preach the balance next week uh, and it just simply reads since the days of your ancestors you have turned from my statutes and you have not kept them look what his response is return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of armies yet you ask how can we return will a man rob God yet you are robbing me how do we rob you he asks therein ends the reading of God's word. Why don't we pray together? Dear Jesus, we thank you that you called our name. Uh, and you gave, us a, you gave us a new glorious day because of the resurrection. I pray that you will be with us now. Allow the spirit of Christ to fall fresh in this place and allow people to be uh, engaged by the word and ultimately uh, that you will work in and through their hearts. So, Lord, we love you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Everybody that agree with that, say amen, amen. Again, as you probably guessed from the sheer amount of blow-up dolls that we have in the room that we're starting a a new series called Elephant in the Room, Uh, and an elephant in a room is an English metaphorical idiom uh, that talks about an important topic that goes often overlooked or undiscussed. Uh, It's a a controversial issue that is obvious to everyone, but is often deliberately overlooked or not talked about. And I would argue that in God's church, there are a number of elephants in the room. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of them um, that we can talk about. But I think that one of the biggest ones that we deal with is this idea of money, in fact, uh, some of us are nervous, or some pastors are often nervous about talking about money because as we, because we know that there are certain people in the congregation that have had some bad experiences, some, some terrible financial history revolving around money, some, some cultural perceptions that are not in line with what the scriptures have to say. And then on top of that, it's difficult because each of us falls into one of two categories. Either you know somebody that's been hurt, by the way the church has managed finances, or you have been hurt by the way somebody in church has uh, has managed finances. And on top of that, there's this uh, perception of pastors in the media now that we are all uh, money swindling uh, uh, crooks that are always trying to take people's money and let me just say, just because a few pastors did that doesn't mean that all of us are going to do that. Uh, we all don't wear gaiters and slick our hair back and wear big suits either, right? So we don't all do that, uh, but you shouldn't base your opinion on a few off of your opinion of everyone based upon your experience from a few. Um, And then on top of that, this issue of money is complicated because people view churches as antiquated and irrelevant institutions that really push people towards guilt-giving. And so when we approach this topic of money, it can cause some of us to feel apprehensive about it. But I just want to throw my cards on the table here. As we get ready to get started, Accelerate Church is not a church that's after your life savings, we're after your life. Did y'all hear me today? We, we, we're after your life. We want you, in the words of, in these words, uh, we want you to assess what's in your aorta instead of trying to reach what's in your account. In other words, we care about what's in your heart. That's what we're trying to say there. That's what we're trying to say. I, I was trying to figure out a way to, 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 to make that sound good. It was the best I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's like, hey, you want to tip this, pastor? I don't know about that one. Uh, so, but we need to talk about this money, and I'll say uh, we need to do it for a few reasons, all right? Number one, we need to talk about money because you and I think about money or talk about it every day. True or false? True. Okay, good, good. So, so you know, this week was really big in the Grant household. Uh, we celebrated my daughter's sixth birthday on Thursday. Shout out to her. Uh, we also celebrate, Sarah and I also celebrated our 11th anniversary yesterday. That was fun. That was, a, that was a lot of fun. And listen, you know, I know that in this season, especially when you're starting a new church, that it can be very, very easy for my family to feel like they're taking a backseat to the church. And so I want them to know, you know, we went, I went above and beyond this, this week because I wanted them to know that they don't have to fight for my affection and my attention. Sarah is my bride. This church is Jesus' bride. Amen. So, so I wanted her to, amen, I really wanted her to get that. Uh, but don't think we didn't have some dialogues about money along the way. Because although it was a great week and I would do it all over again, um, it wasn't cheap. And I just say that to you today because I know that you and I are in the same boat. Because money is like a, a tab that's going off in our minds all the time. If you think about it, we argue about it. We pray for more over it, more about, more of it. We worry about it. We get stressed when we don't have enough of it. We make plans around it. We try to protect it at all costs. On top of that, it dictates what we do, how we act, and often what we say. Many of us are like, I would have quit my job a long, long time ago, but the reason I don't is because I can't afford for this bag to be fumbled. Therefore, I'm going to shut my mouth. That's just what it is. So let me ask you if something occupies such a significant amount of real rental or mental real estate in our minds, how much more does it make sense that we would get God's perspective on it? Another thing is we need to be reminded that God is the owner of everything. According to the Christian worldview, everything that we have ultimately belongs to God. So that includes the air in our lungs. That includes the blood in our veins as well as the money in our accounts. And so since we, we have been, God is the owner and we have been entrusted with his resources. So that is what Christians call stewardship. And so there can be no proper understanding of stewardship if there's not an acute awareness of ownership. And it's important for us to know God's perspective on money Because how could you act in the best interest of the owner if you don't know their intentions? Amen? No? Okay. All right. That That fell. We're going to work through it. Here we go. We got more. And so we have to understand what God wants us to do with money. And then here's the third reason why we're going to talk about money. It's very simple. Uh, We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. You should know that the same abuses that occur today were the same abuses that happened during Jesus' day. Uh, There were were many religious figures who were taking advantage of financially strapped people. They they were abusing their power in order to enrich themselves. And you would think that because of what was happening in the culture, Jesus might kind of shrink back and not talk about the issue. He did the opposite. He actually talks about money a lot. Uh, 15% of his recorded words were about money. 16 of his 38 parables had something to do with money. He talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. He talked about money more than he talked about faith and prayer. So some of us are wondering, well, what is one of the reasons that Jesus talks about money so much? And it made me think of a conversation that Jesus had with a tax collector, this this gentleman named Zacchaeus, that extorted people out of money. And he says this, after Zacchaeus decided to pay back people fourfold that he had taken advantage of or that he cheated, this is what Jesus said to him in Luke 19. He says, today salvation has come to your house. Now, now what's astounding about this statement is that Jesus judges the reality of this man's salvation on his willingness to part with his money to please God and to do well for others. Are y'all hearing me today, church? In other words, Jesus talked about money so much because it was the foundational indicator or of who or what your heart trusts the most. Your budget is the most accurate barometer of what you say you believe about God. A lot of times we have aspirational goals, but when we examine our budget, they simply don't align to it. We say that we care about the poor and the homeless and things like that, but yet we spend more of our money at Starbucks. So what that means is that Starbucks is ultimately our homeless shelter. We, we, we say that, oh, oh my, I, I care about those who are enslaved and ending human trafficking, but we don't have any line items in our budget. Are y'all hearing me today, church? So, so you, could, you can have all these aspirational values, but one of the ways you can check the foundational, the foundation of your heart is if you compare what you say by what you spend. And what he's saying is it's a foundational, foundational indicator of what you believe, Jesus said it like this, in Luke twelve, uh, Luke twelve, verse thirty four, he says, "Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So he's saying, in other words, where your money resides is where your heart's going to reside. It, 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 if, uh, let me go on, that's, a, that's another, I'm coming, I'm, here we go, here we go. So money is the, it, on top of that, money is the foundational indicator of your soul. Jesus doesn't say it's church attendance, he doesn't say it's the exactness of your theology, though those are, port, are, are important, he's saying the way you spend your money is the accurate representation of what's in your heart. And so if this is your first time here today, let me just say, welcome to the cookout, we happy that you're here. You know what I'm saying? Hopefully talking about money does not uh, cause the hair on your neck to rise up too much. But here's what I want to say. Um, we're glad that you're here. And I promise that we're not the church that's going to have the $20 offering lines and be, do the guilt giving and all that. We, give, we do grace giving. We say in light of all of what God has given to us, we give freely and generously to him because all of it belongs to him anyway. That's what we say, right? It's all the Lord's. We give it to him generously because it's his. Uh, But what I'm going to ask you to do if you're here is to think introspectively about your relationship with money. And for those who call Accelerate Church home, let me just say welcome back. We're 10 weeks old. Shout out to it. Yes, 10 weeks old. And so um, I just want to say in order for us to be a movement that creates moments for people to meet Jesus and in order for us to be the bridge between Camden City and Camden County and that that uh, that that leverages the resources from the from the county in order to bless the city, it's going to cause us to reimagine or, or redefine our relationship with money. Like, like one of the ways that we're going to be able to start new campuses and eventually get a building and see God flood Cherry Hill is through your generosity. And so I'm going to ask, after all this is all over, uh, that you would go all in with us as we seek to do this. And so let's jump into our passage today. This is uh, again one of the most butchered passages in all of the Bible. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of pastors, have used this to curse to pronounce curses on people that don't invest 10% of their income into the church. And we're going to get into that, not this week, but next week. We're going to talk about a lot of that. Um, and some of you came from churches where you thought, hey, if I just give enough, um, if God has given me seed, if I sow the seed, it's going to make me wealthy. And so what we did was, we, um, what that line of thinking just basically says is that we give in order to manipulate God into giving us more. And so so therefore, our giving is not out of a place of gratitude, it's from a place of spiritual coercion. We say, God, since you've given me this money and I sow it or I give it, then I'm expecting you to make me rich. Not only is that poor theology, but I would say that it's left a bad taste in a lot of our mouths. And so, um, God understands this and knows this. So, so what he does in this book is he like, yo, I know that we've got a bunch of problems. One is specifically around money. So what he does in this book is he begins talking about all the issues that the people in Israel have. So this book is called Malachi. Uh, it was written in the fifth century BCE. It was a, it was a group of exiles, uh, a group of Jewish exiles returning from captivity in a foreign country. And they were resettling in this native land. Um, But sadly enough, they continued the same patterns of behavior that allowed them to be enslaved in the first place. And what God does in this passage through the prophet Malachi is he explains to them that a great deal of their faithfulness is tied to how they spend or use their money. He's saying that, listen, my my hope is that you will turn away this, but let me grab Malachi. Let me record some words on the ground. So he begins in verse 7. He says, since the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statutes and not, con- command or not kept them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been so frustrated with someone that you can't even yell at them? Instead of yelling, you just let out a sigh, like, ah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's kind of the tone of this passage right here. But this sigh is pregnant with a, with thousands of years of frustration. He's like God is like Israel. I have loved you unconditionally, but for some reason you keep being unfaithful to me. God is like I, I remember when you were in bondage in Egypt for over four hundred years. You complained to me for a deliverer, for someone to free you from your spiritual and economic uh, exploitation that you were experiencing. Then I sent you this guy named Moses as a deliverer. Moses pronounced ten plagues on Egypt, and he doesn't affect the children of Israel. And then what I did was I with, once you got free, I opened up the Red Sea so that you can walk through it when you had all the enemies behind you. He's like, don't you remember that? Don't you remember that a few chapters later, you took the gold that you got from Egypt as reparations and you fashioned it into a cow to worship. Then after Moses died and I turned it over to my servant Joshua, um, he, he, he did a, a series of conquests to take over the promised land. And then I told you when you got to the land not to worship those gods in the land, but you end up doing that very same thing. And then on top of that, after Joshua, I gave you judges who were supposed to look over you, but you continue to do what was right and wrong in your own eyes. Then in 1 Samuel 8, I finally give you a king that you had begged me for. And then after four kings, you just the, the 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 nation just split apart because of your unrighteousness. And then I allowed the northern kingdom to go into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom to go into Babylonian captivity for over 70 years. And then when I let you come back into the land, you're doing the very same things that got you in captivity in the first place. He's like, what what, what are y'all on? What's wrong with you? Now you're people. You're taking advantage of your fellow Israelites. You're offering blind animals as sacrifices to me on the altar. Like, what are, y'all, what are y'all doing? And I'll be honest with you, when I read that, I was like, what are they doing? What are these fools doing? Then I realized that we are very much like the children of Israel. It's easy for us to point a finger. But we act the very same way. Have you ever gotten yourself in a mess so bad that you just had no idea how you were going to get out of it? And then you were like, God, I, I promise you, if you just deliver. Oh, God, if you just get me out of this. I promise you I won't do that anymore. I promise you if you just turn it around this time that I won't do that. God, if you give me a church that checks all the boxes, God, I'm going to be faithful to it. If you give me the financial resources, God, I promise that I'll be generous. But then as soon as God delivers us out of that situation, not only do we forget the promise that was made, but we go back to the very same behavior that got us in trouble in the first place here's an IG caption right here. We promise things, we promise God things in our desperation, then we forget about it in our deliverance. We be like, God, I promise you I won't do this. And I just hear God saying to some of us in here, make good on your promise. Make good on. You said that you were going to do it. I didn't forget. Somehow you casually did, but make good on your promise. And so When he's talking about your fathers being unfaithful, he's trekking through generations of unfaithfulness. But look how God responds. He says, come back to me. Ernest Grant would have been like, I'm through with you. Right? Many of us would have done the same thing. I don't want to deal with you. I'm done chasing you. I'm done trying to help you understand that what I have for you is better than you. God didn't do any of those things. He said, why don't you return to me? And that's because we serve a compassionate God. We serve a God that understands our frailties. He knows our insecurities. He knows our poor patterns of behavior. And he still loves us anyway. What a beautiful thing. And the same thing that God is saying to the children of Israel in this passage is the same thing that he's saying to you and I today. I know that you messed up. I know that you've cheated and you've lied. I know that you've done all type of ungodly stuff, but my arms are here ready to welcome you back into your father's house. I don't know who needs to hear this, but maybe you do, because maybe you came into this church and you were riddled with guilt or burdened with insecurity. I just want to let you know that you are not too far gone for God. There's not a place in your life that the grace of God can't reach. That There's not a nook and cranny in your heart that the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all of our sin, cannot seep into and clean off. I just need somebody to do that because you've been telling yourself a lie. Like, oh, God, I promise you, once I get right, I'll come back to church. Once I get right, I'll come back to you. Get this. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it by yourself. You and I are reckless and broken people. We can't live up to the standard of God. But, oh, thank God that we have a great physician. Uh, and a great high priest that's in touch with all of our infirmities and has the ability to heal us in the places in our life that hurt the most. Y'all ought to give God some praise for that. But thank God that he's merciful and he's compassionate. And thank God he does not give up on people too early. Now, most of us, when we get offended or somebody hurts us, we're done with them after one or two tries. We cut people off and then complain about being lonely. But let me just say this. The fidelity of a relationship is not tested. The fidelity of the relationship must be tested by trials and hardship and arguments at times. It does. Sometimes you have to give people the opportunity and space to repent. We want grace from God and others that we are not willing to extend to other people. Oh, we're not talking about it. let Let me go on. Let me just go on. Let me go on. Let me go on. And let me just tell you, if God was willing to forgive people that had sinned against him for thousands of years, surely he can save you and forgive you for a while in the last few decades. Surely, because he's merciful and compassionate. He's kind and loving. I, I, I don't know what character, caricature you have in your mind about God. You, you might have thought God was like this ruthless taskmaster that doesn't want you happy and always wants to harm you and always punishes you for sin that you have done. No, he's a loving and compassionate father that's sitting on the step waiting for you to come home. He says, I know I know about your brokenness. I already know about all the things that you've done. I just want you. So he goes on here and he says, return to me and I will return to you. I love that. And he says, not only return to me, he says, return to the Lord of hosts. Y'all see that there? Or it says the Lord of armies. What he's saying is that I am the commander of Israel's army. I'm the commander of the angelic hosts in heaven and that I can call them down right now to protect and take care of you. Thank God that we serve a God that has the ability to fight on your behalf. Calls himself the Lord of Armies. He said you're not too far gone. And you would think after this compassionate plea, right? Like after this compassionate plea, they were like, "Yes, God, we're sorry we messed up. We repent." We're sorry for what happened. We want to fall down at your feet and say we're sorry. That's not what they did. They had an arrogant response. This is what they said. They said, how can we return to you? Do you see that there? How can we return to you? In other words, how can we return to you when we haven't gone anywhere at all? We haven't gone anywhere. So, you know, what happens is they they, they responded with resistance instead of remorse. You know, I... One of the most dangerous things you could do as a Christian is pray. Amen, somebody. It's it, it's a, it's amazing what happens in prayer. And so I was listening to this talk not so long ago by this pastor uh, that really just challenged me. He was like, you know, we we live in a culture where everybody focuses on their strengths, and not enough people are aware of their weaknesses. And I said, okay, that's that's fine. Um, and so he was encouraging us through the sermon to ask God to challenge us in the areas that least look like him. See, a lot of us are good at like praying, but we're not good at confessing sin. Like a lot of us might be good at quiet times, but we're not good at like telling ourselves no. So I was like, you know what? I think I'm okay. So I think I'm not too bad, right, Jesus? So yeah, challenge me in the areas that I let least look like you. Uh, the, the number one area was, ooh, confession is hard, somebody. Ooh, having to confess my sin to my wife sometimes is, is difficult. I'm like, babe, I'm sorry. <clears throat> um, okay. This is, you know, so confession is one. But the other one is, a lot of times I do not take responsibility for my actions as quickly as I need to. And I say that because, uh, because I'm confessing. There you go. I got to do better. Amen. I got to do better with that. Uh, But I say that because you and I are in the same boat. Because we are so willing to justify ourselves. When someone tells us that our motives are wrong or they tell us we have a poor attitude, the first thing we do is get defensive. No, I don't. I don't. That's not me. I don't get defensive. I don't get defensive. Well, you're you're just being defensive right there. That, That was you being defensive right there. What we do, the first thing we do, we get irritable... Then we want to go on a fact-finding expedition, give me some details. Well, when did I do that? When, I, didn't, I don't remember doing that. Well, I, I, then we and then we, oh, my favorite one is, then we offer those little sideways apologies. Well, if you felt like I did that, or I'm sorry if it came off that way. When somebody challenges us on what we've done, we, got a, we need a three-point sermon with a poem, multiple examples, and a doctoral dissertation before we take advantage of it or take, we take responsibility of it. But that's exactly what the children of Israel wanted here. They were like, no, I'm not going to respond with remorse. I'm going to respond with resistance. And here's what I want you to do. God, give me some more example. How have I done this? How how have we run away from you, God, right? And so you would think that maybe God would say, oh, you ran away from me because of your anemic prayer life. You're a functional atheist in many ways because you don't pray enough to me to intervene on your behalf. You would think he would say that. Maybe he would say, oh, your attendance at the temple is not that good. Or maybe he would say, no, you're not living justly and, and holy and things like that. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, your rebellion is most evident in how you manage your finances. Do you see that in the text? Of all things he could have mentioned, he mentioned their money. Because what God knows is that there's a fundamental connection between your spiritual lives and your spending. Your faith and your finances are inextricably linked, and they cannot be divorced from one another. So they ask, God, how have we been robbing you? When he says robbing, it's like he's using this word plunder. You've been plundering and taking advantage of me like a weaker nation is exploited by a greater nation. It's like this is a really, really violent word. And they say, how have I done that? They are blind to their own sin. Do you see that in the text? They're blinded to this. They didn't even know that they were robbing God. And I asked myself the question, how did they not know that they were sinning? And then I realized this, that greedy people are often unaware that they're actually greedy. Greedy. And here's the thing. I was listening to a talk by this New York theologian. And he said something that I, I, I just, I had to give pause and reflect. I've been in full-time ministry for, for 10 years. I've been actively involved in ministry for 15 years. And I've heard a lot of people confess their sin. A lot of people pour out their heart. But in all my years, no one has ever confessed to being greedy or too materialistic. Preach Ernest Grant. Nobody has ever booked a meeting with me and sat down with me like, Pastor, I've got to confess some sin. I'm like, yo, what's going on? What's, What's happening? I'm just such a materialist. I just spend too much money on myself. Oh, okay. Nobody has ever said, Pastor, what's up, bro? I spend too much money on Amazon. I know that would hit home. Nobody's ever said, I spend too much money on my clothing, on makeup and shoes and nails and all those accessories. Shout out to them if you get it. Amen. We happy that you do that. Amen. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, Naya, it's just the truth. We don't, none of us do it. None of us do it. Let's do a test in your heart. You don't have to raise your hand. In your heart, how many of you confess your sins to God, right? And how many of you have confessed to God that you were too materialistic? N- not too many. You do? Oh, you okay? Good, Jess, that's great. But for the rest of us, <laughs> the tough part is is we are blind to our greed. We are the richest nation in the world. Americans make so much money right now, and we don't—we don't even consider that we have an insatiable desire for money, and that is blinding us. When Jesus says it like this, he says in Luke twelve, he says, "Watch out for all forms of greed." Keller says it like this: um, "You never have to." He never says, "Watch out for all forms of adultery." Or watch out for all forms of stealing. Why? Because you actually know that you're doing those. You know that you're committing those sins. But the reason he says watch out for all forms of greed is that we rarely know we're guilty of it. So I'm going to ask you, are you greedy? How many of us confess our greed? How many of us are even largely aware that we have a greed problem in our lives. Here's another IG caption. I've got a few of these, so I want you to get this one. We become so blinded by our greed that we fool ourselves into thinking that the sin does not exist in our lives. That's where we're at. Have we ever asked ourselves, do you need that new gadget? Do we need that new shoe? Do we need that new vacation? Do we need to max out our credit cards impressing people we don't know? And truth be told, don't like, if we're going to be honest. But as the worship team comes, and I'm finishing up, I just, I just want you to have spiritual eyes right now. And to be honest about the condition of your heart, yes, we're going to get into generosity. Yes, we're going to talk about the technical aspects and tithing and giving and all those things. But I want to encourage you to ask the Lord during our time of response, God, am I too greedy? Am I too self-saturated or, or self-centered? And the reason that Christians give, we don't give because somebody's twisting our arm. We, grieve, we give, here's one more IG caption for you, because generosity is holy resistance to greed. It's holy resistance. We don't simply give because God commands it or it's required. No, no, we give because it's one of the ways that we can recover our lives after it's been flooded with greed. We don't give under compulsion. But more than anything else, we give because it is the ultimate example of the gospel. Do you know that Jesus was in heaven and he was perfectly content and happy there? He was with the Father and with the Spirit. He was enjoying his time. He, 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 He was with them and they were in harmony. And he left the riches of heaven to come down into the impoverished earth. And he became poor so that we could be spiritually rich. Ha- have you ever lent somebody money and you just knew that they were never going to give you and that you were not going to get the money back? So you just let out a sigh like, Ugh. you lent it to them knowing that there was going to be no chance for you to get that money back. And can I tell you that that is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew that we had run up our spiritual credit card of iniquity He knew that we owed a debt to God that would take us an eternity in hell to pay off. But he decided to leave his palatial estate in in, in heaven and come down and use his credit card called the cross to swipe our debt and to cover our cost. I'm just so thankful today, church, that Jesus is not greedy. Because if he was greedy, there would be no hope for our salvation. But thanks be to God that he saw us poor and impoverished, spiritually worn out, spiritually maxed out. And he decided in his goodness and mercy, I'm going to cover their expense on their behalf. And so listen, why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes? I just want to pray for us for a second. We're going to respond in one minute, but I just want to take a moment to pray for us. ask you this question what's God saying to you right now and what are you going to do about it what's God saying and what are you going to do about it Father we come to you in this moment just recognizing our frailties recognizing our sin and iniquity and our compulsion over money Lord money rules over us in innumerable ways and it keeps us and prevents us from being generous Father I pray that you will help expose us, expose our greed, expose the ways that we have exploited others, and the ways that we have mistreated you. And Father, we pray in this moment that you would break sin's power of greed off of us, so that we can live in the newness and the fullness of life. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Everybody that agree with that, say, Amen, Amen. Why don't we stand?